You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 3 through and into chapter 4 and verse 1. Our focus this morning will be on 3, 12 through 16. It's beginning in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy Father, forgive us all the times when having tasted something of your grace and mercy, walking in your truths, enjoying your goodness, we begin to stand still, to think we've arrived to believe we're mature, to settle, 
But Father, grant us to see how far we've to go. Not in any kind of crippling way. But in a way that draws and moves and propels us. To know you more and be conformed to the image of your son. Grant grace today in the preaching of your word. As your spirit opens our eyes to these truths. To behold, lift the veil, to become like the Christ in whose name we ask this. Amen. Perfectionism is a peculiar heresy. It's also a perpetual heresy. One reason it's peculiar is because it's a perpetual heresy. You examine it, examine it you may ask yourself, how does this thing live on? Why was it believed? How did it become popular? There have been a number of mutations and variations that have afflicted and plagued the church throughout her history. And every one of them, though, I think at root, we can say are expressions of Pelagianism. Pelagius was that monk, that British monk who balked at Augustine's line from his confessions. My entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant, command what you will and will what you command, or command, grant what you command and Command what you will. Augustine confessed that man is bankrupt spiritually and entirely dependent upon the grace of God. And Pelagius came along and said, God would be unjust to ask of man something that man is incapable of doing. We have it in and of ourselves. Now grace may come along and assist you, but it's not necessary. Charles Finney who's lauded by many evangelicals as a hero of the Second Great Awakening, was not only a rank heretic, he was a, uh, his perfectionism had a strong Pelagian flavor, more, more than most. He denied total depravity, he denied original sin, and so can you see why whenever he says we have it, we can be perfect, it has a Pelagian flavor, you can be perfect by yourself. You have what it takes. But most perfectionism is an attempt to make Pelagianism palatable. It's an attempt to dress it up in the garb of grace. And though Pelagianism, pure Pelagianism, is much more vile than most strains of perfectionism from which it have which have derived from it. Though that's the case, let's give Pelagianism this. At least the Pelagian who says he's perfect fully blames his delusion on himself that he's arrived at such a state. Whereas the perfectionism blames God for the delusion that he's come to the state of perfection. Perfection can be redefined. You hollow it out, such as John Wesley did. He taught perfectionism. But it was this sort. 
that uh, the perfection we can arrive at in this life is that we will avoid all willful sinning, knowledgeable sinning, going into sin, choosing it. We can grow beyond that point. Much more common and derivative from that moment, and Finney as well, is that the saint comes to some kind of crisis moment in their walk with God. A heavy moment loaded with gravity and they exercise faith in that moment and just rest. It's a kind of experiential point that they come to. Not so much that you just have it in yourself and will it, but there is this moment, we might call it a second blessing. It might involve the baptism of the Spirit in some teaching. It is often associated with what's called Keswick theology, K-E-S-W-I-C-K, Keswick theology, or higher life theology, or living the victorious Christian life. Or one way you've very likely heard this expressed in diluted form is that you've made Jesus your Savior, but have you made Him your Lord? So that there's some kind of two-tier Christianity, those who are down here and those who have arrived at a superior state. All these are variants and expressions of perfectionism. But the most dangerous form is what I'll call incipient perfectionism. Or perfectionism in the bud. It's so dangerous because we don't even realize it. You must recognize that perfectionism finds ready soil. How does this thing live on? If you ask that, and I do, you need to realize you're in a dangerous spot. Because you have to recognize the ready soil that perfectionism finds in all of our hearts. In unearthing the roots of Finney's perfectionism, B.B. Warfield, tracing it to New Haven, which is a reference to what we know now as Yale, tracing it to New Haven, tracing it to the place that just generations earlier had educated Jonathan Edwards, leading to the first great awakening. Edwards tracing it, uh, Warfield tracing it to New Haven, Yale, and to the presser, Professor N.W. Taylor writes, Pelagianism, unfortunately, does not wait to be imported from New Haven and does not require inculcating. It is the instinctive thought of the natural man. So Pelagianism, this idea that we can in and of ourselves by our own works arrive And perfectionism, which is a derivative of that, finds ready, not only ready soil, it's our instinctive thought. If you don't realize how subtle the danger can be, if you're not able to recognize perfectionism in the bud, recognize this heresy as a sapling, you... Consider this, you have not arrived whenever you acknowledge everything is loss 
for the sake of knowing Christ. When you come to that point, and oh, praise be to God when you have your eyes open to recognize that. But when you come to that point, you have not arrived. Everything that Paul speaks of in verses 8 through 11, all that accounting that he does, counting everything as loss for the gain of Christ, all that accounting is not the destination It is the departure point. While you must find contentment in knowing Christ, you must never be content with what you know of Christ. While you must be content with what God has graciously given you, you must never be content with what you have given God. Not in the sense of any kind of merit, but just in the sense of He's worthy. There's a way that we, there's often a way in which we think we've arrived in the Christian walk when we come to certain points. And while we would never dream of claiming perfection, I would guess of you, we, by default, whenever we think we've arrived, act as though we do. Paul will say much about contentment in this letter shortly, but nothing of that kind of contentment. We don't arrive in this life. We are to press on. Now this is a text that if one foolishly takes it in isolation, if one just takes it in a kind of vague and detached ways, it can be used in the most fleshly of ways. The same kind of way that chapter 4 and verse 13 is just picked out. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. This is the kind of passage that's too easily chewed on by dogs and spit out as some kind of motivational, encouraging pep talk. Now this is the kind of danger I'm saying we bring to this text. Whenever I say that we can take it in a fleshly manner, I'm not referring to the fleshly manner that Paul has just rebuked. That kind of pharisaical, Pelagian attempt at righteousness. Now, the fleshly way in which I think we're bent to use this, but it is related. You have to see they're related. But it, it takes on a different shape. We don't think so much in terms of righteousness as in recognizing all of our potential, shining and being what we were meant to be, pressing on, that kind of mess. This is the kind of passage, in other words, you would expect a prosperity preacher to pick out. They have about ten texts, they just cycle through them, this is one of them. Notice, though, the difficulty of this text. What is meant by this Not that I've already obtained this or it. I press on to make it my own. What's meant by the goal, the prize? What is the this that Paul hasn't obtained? I think if we can unravel that particular bit of this text and pull on that thread, this whole knot of of what Paul is getting at here, we'll just 
unwind. First thing is that this is related to being perfect. Not that I've already obtained this or am perfect. So this is akin to perfection. And the this and perfection are related to the it that Paul is pressing on to make his own. We haven't filled in all the lines, but you already can draw this conclusion. Perfection in this life is not a state that one arrives at, but a state that one presses towards. It's not something you arrive at in this life, but something you press towards. Now, filling out our definition more and more, note that Paul expresses the same sentiment that he puts forward in verse 12 and verses 13 and 14. I don't consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. So the it is going to receive some clarification here. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So the imagery here is that of a race. The it that Paul is pressing on towards is a goal. And he presses towards that goal for a prize. And at this point, all I want you to recognize with this is the forward orientation of the Christian life. When the saints rest in the past, Christ crucified and risen, it is so that they may run with liberty forward in the Christian walk. It's because of what we remember and believe and trust about the past that we're free to walk unfettered, unburdened by the crushing weight of our own past. Full of sin. And liberated from that, we run forward. Next, to fill out what this and it is more fully, consider the context. I mean, don't you see whenever he says, not that I've already obtained this, that this section does not stand alone. Paul has said something that might give the impression that he's come to a place of perfection. So what has he said that discloses what perfection is? What has he said that speaks of what it is that he's pressing towards that's related to this perfection? Paul does three pieces of accounting in verses 7 through 10. The first one considers his past. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But the next two are in the present tense. I count, I count. And they speak of desire and anticipation and move us towards glorification. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
I take the this and the it that Paul has not yet obtained, but he is pressing towards to be knowledge of and conformity to Christ. Sanctification, you see here, is to be a striving after glorification. And your glorification means this. A conformity to the resurrected Christ. And greater knowledge of Him. In this life, that is perfection. That is what perfection is. And in this life, you won't arrive at it. And yet, you are to be straining towards it. Next, in verse 12... Paul lays before us either a reason for pressing on or the goal for which we press on. It's unclear. The translation of the text is difficult. So in the ESV, you have the, uh, a reason, a grounds that looks backward for pressing on as a motivation. The New American Standard gives you a reason in the sense of why I'm Pressing on. What's the goal out there? I'm reaching forward towards it. Rather than motivation because of what's been done, it's anticipation of what lies ahead. So here, here are the two translations side by side. ESV. I press on to make it my own because Jesus has, has made me his own. Or New American Standard. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So the ESV tells us why, looking back. The New American Standard tells us why, looking forward. Let's consider ESV grounds view first. Here's the good news. doesn't matter which way, because the text teaches both of them eventually. Grounds view, ESV, Paul presses on because Jesus has made him his own. He presses on to make it his own because Jesus has made Paul his own. Paul does not press on to make it his own so that Jesus will make him his, make him his own, but because Jesus had. That's the motivation. This is pressing on not for merit, but because of mercy. It's expressing the same thing we saw was underlying Paul's command in 12, 2, 12, and 13. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, that's the first view. Second, Paul may be saying that the reason for which he is pressing on is to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of him. And because that idea includes necessarily the first idea, Jesus has laid hold of me. So, you see the motive? The grounds of grace are already there. It assumes that. And it also resonates with Paul what he says in verse 14. 
I believe the New American Standard has a better translation here. I think that's the idea. They're parallel. I press on to lay hold of that for which Jesus laid hold of me. And then he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In both instances, he is straining toward something God has already done. Upward call, Jesus taking hold of him. And Paul says, that call that's there, that that hold that is on me, I'm pressing towards it. Verse 14, then what is this goal and prize? Some think that this, and and to answer that, you need to get to the upward call. What's the upward call? Some think it is death. Come home. But we don't arrive, according to Paul, at perfection at death. We come to a place of sinlessness and knowledge of Christ, enjoying its better... Paul says it's better to be out of body and present with the Lord, but he doesn't say it's best. Best is whenever we enter the, into the fullness of our redemption in the resurrection. We're not meant to float about unembodied. That's not perfection. That's not the fullness of redemption that's held out to you in Christ. Okay, so then others say, oh, the upward call of God is the resurrection. And I wouldn't want to argue with that really hard, but I think that's only getting at part of the answer. I think the the resurrection is the consummation of this upward call. I believe that the upward call is is the same thing as what we refer to as the effectual call. Whenever God calls us out of our spiritual graves, dead in our sins, to life in Jesus, that's a call that doesn't terminate with spiritual life. It's a call that will only be consummated whenever you enter into the fullness of the life, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. When God calls us out of our graves... That is a call that not only originates in heaven, it is a call that will terminate in heaven. Let me make an argument for that. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that the Ephesian church would have the eyes of their heart enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which God has called them. He wants them to know the hope That's future. That's the resurrection. That's glorification. That's the return of Christ and all things made new. He wants them to know this hope to which God has called them. It's not something that happens at their death. It's already happened. You've already been called to this, saints. And nothing. God has spoken it and it will be. He's called you. And you've already tasted in part. You are in the grave dead and you've been resurrected in Jesus already. You've already experienced this. And that call will bring you all the way home. The very calling of God that comes to us as a Lazarus in the tomb will bring us from that hole all the way to heaven.
Romans 8.30 tells us that those whom He predestined, that's eternity past, fixing your eternal future. Predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. To what? He predestined you and He called you to that destination. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also spoken of because it's already so resolute in God. It doesn't say those whom He justified, He will glorify. It just says He also glorified. It's resolved. God has called. The predestined destination is accomplished. And calling us to life, God calls us to the fullness of life. Resurrection life in Jesus. Everything that's promised there. The call that initiates our spiritual life is consummated with resurrection life. In 1 and verse 6, Paul said this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The completion that you come into at the day of Jesus Christ is the consummation of what He began. That call that brought you to life is consummated when you enter fully into that life. So, in Paul's regeneration, coming to spiritual life, Jesus laid hold of Paul. And now Paul is saying, that for which Jesus laid hold of me in giving me spiritual life, I now press on towards grasping everything that's there. And so this race now that's been put before us, I hope you see it's a swim. There is a divine current that is carrying Paul along. And it not only flows outside of Paul, it flows inside of him. Carrying him towards this destination. What God began in calling Paul to life, He will bring to completion. I want you to see in this how connected regeneration, uh, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification are. All of them are a participation in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. From germination to maturation, all of it is a drawing life from the vine. What glorification means is a entering into a fullness of knowledge of and conformity to Christ. That's what glorification is. Now, our God is incomprehensible. We will never exhaust eternity in learning more and more of our God, but there's a way in which we come into the fullness of knowing Him. Or the fullness of being able to know Him, if you will. And the fullness of conformity to Him with the resurrection. John writes in his first letter, 3, 2-3, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, when He appears, we shall be like Him. Conformity. For because we shall see Him. Knowledge. As He is. And then it says this, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. As we look forward to that hope, we are becoming more and more of what we will be when that hope is realized. Link this up with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For we see, we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Saints, oh, I hope by God's grace the Spirit now is is communicating to you through the Word of Christ this divine current that is carrying you along. And I hope it's flowing in your veins richly now. You sense it so that this upward call is something you know is pulling you and you want to go with the current. You don't want to float on your back. You want to press on. Take hold of that for which you were taken hold of. To know more and more of what Paul refers to in verse 10 as the power of His resurrection. Not to be content to know the power of His resurrection whenever it's just simply going to affect your body, but to know it within your soul more and more. Knowing Christ, being conformed to Christ, muscles will cramp, bones will ache, both spiritually and physically. There will be blood, and there will be sweat, and there will be tears. And you will count it all as loss, even for the sake of being conformed to Christ in His sufferings, that by any means possible, you may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's what it means to press on. And so don't rest on your laurels. And don't toss and turn over your failures. I mean nothing. Because Christ has washed away the one. And the other was never good enough. Needed to be washed away as well. And He is all your righteousness. And you will be conformed to the righteousness that is already counted to you in Christ one day. Press on to become what you have been declared to be in Jesus. And will be whenever you see Him. Where is this upward call calling you? To heaven. To conformity to Christ. To the glory of God. And what is the prize of this upward call? Knowledge. Knowledge of God in Christ. Saints, press on. While we cannot be perfect in this life, we should be mature. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. The mature think this way, the way Paul has just instructed us in. So maturity in this life does not mean perfection. Rather, it means readily acknowledging we won't arrive at perfection. Good way to respond to the perfectionist. I can remember encountering one on the campus of Oklahoma State, open air preaching in the middle of the campus, telling us about sinless perfection and how he had arrived. I wish I had had the knowledge then of what... uh, I, I don't know if it's a... 
a true account or not, but I, uh, there is an account, a story told of Spurgeon throwing milk in someone's face who claimed perfection and the man became irate and quickly proved that he had not yet arrived at a perfectionist state. I wish I'd had such knowledge whenever I first encountered this soul. But I, I, in retrospect, I think the best thing would be to just patronize them and say, those who claim to be perfect, well, you're just immature and one day you'll grow up out of that, I hope. Maturity means acknowledging that you're not perfect, but it's not a defeatist admission. It is not an inactive recognition of our imperfection. It presses on to take hold of that for which we were taken hold of. It presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So whenever Paul says, if anything you think otherwise, he's not, so, not really speaking about, hey, if you have a different theological persuasion than this. He's saying if you have a different kind of attitude towards the Christian life than this. And that's really communicated again with the New American Standard. It translates this, if in anything you have a different attitude. If you're approaching the Christian life in a way different than this, well, Paul says, God will reveal that to you. Again, God will complete His work in those who are His. How is it that God will reveal this to them? Reveal to those who are less mature? How, how will He reveal it to them so that they're pressed on in such a way where they will say, I, I consider this one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. How does He do that? Look back to 125 for the answer. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, he's speaking of his imprisonment and, and his expected release and going to visit them. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. How are these saints in Philippi to advance and grow and mature in Christ? And the answer is the apostolic ministry of Paul. In other words, apostolic truth. Where are you to gain such a means to grow into maturity? The holy scriptures of our God. The prophetic and apostolic truth of God is the means by which He brings His people to maturity. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Paul writes to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Mature. Equipped for every good work. And then further, consider this as we, we'll look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. The context in which you are to take in the Word of God is the local church. If the seed is the Word, and the soil is your heart, the field is the church. Paul told the Ephesians, He, being the resurrected Christ, He gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the, is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body being joined together with every joint with which it is equipped, when it is, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is to be the place of the ministry of the Word so that we mature into conformity with Christ, knowledge of Christ. And just one way the Word does this is by directing our eyes to Jesus who is our righteousness. Directing our eyes forward to Jesus who is our hope. So that looking at Jesus... We can see that our sins are forgiven. And looking to Jesus, we see the blessed hope that lies ahead of us because of that. But for those who have not come to this place of maturity, Paul has this admonition. Those who are not pressing forward with this kind of zeal, he tells them, hold true. Whatever degree of sanctification you have achieved at this point, achieved, I don't like that word. Whatever degree of sanctification you've attained by the grace of God at this point in your walk, hold true. But saints, don't stand still. Press on. When you come to Jesus, you have not arrived. You are to be constantly progressing. Though you will never be perfect in this life, yet you are to be advancing towards perfection. This life is to be a becoming more and more of what you've declared to be in Jesus and what you will be in Jesus. You're in between there. G.C. Burkauer, one of R.C. Sproul's instructors, said that per- Perfectionism is a premature seizure of the glory that will be. And though it's premature to think you will be perfect in this life, it's immature not to strain towards that perfection. You cannot attain perfection before you die, and yet you must press on towards it. R.C. Sproul warned, sanctification is a process. It is a gradual process. Run for your life from those who promise you instant sanctification. Though you must run from perfectionism, as Douglas Wilson warns, the poison is so often in the ism. Though you must run from perfectionism, you must yet run towards perfection. You must run in this, in this life towards what you will only have in the next. 
If you count all as loss for the sake of Christ. You don't stand still with simply having Christ. You want more of Him. And the more you know Him, the more you will want to be like Him. The more you're like Him, the more you're able to know Him. And then knowing Him more, you want to be like Him more. What a blessed cycle in to be stuck in until the day of His return, saints. Don't begrudge the running of this race. Press on. Press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. Press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Forget what lies behind. Strain towards what lies ahead. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that God works in you for His good pleasure both to will and to do. And I'm sure of this. That He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Press on. Let's pray. Holy Father, direct our eyes to Jesus. We praise You for Him who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith comes from Him, and He is the one who will bring it to its completion. Oh, blessed hope that we will see Him. But until that day, open our eyes more and more to see Him in Your Word and conform us to His image for the glory of His name, Father. Magnify Your Son in us. Do this work in us. Carry us along in this race. May these words flow in our veins so that we press on on towards Christ. In His name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.